All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And it's Dennis Doherty from CEI. And I am hosting with my colleagues, Denise and Teresa, the Small Talk podcast. And we have a very special guest today. Her name is Olivia Miller. And she has a very interesting job in the hospital. She's the only board certified behavior analyst currently working at Boston Children's Hospital. She has a very unique role. For those of you who don't know what a board certified behavior analyst is. Uh, well, Olivia will tell us about it, but uh, high level, they're practitioner with a graduate level certification in behavior analysis. And professionals certified as BCBA level are independent practitioners who provide behavior analytic services. Olivia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the introduction and inviting me to join you guys. Uh, BCBA is is a short term for board certified behavior analyst or sometimes, you know, a behavior analyst. And so what that is, it's really the science of behavior analysis. And so as practitioners, we look at the environment and the contingencies that shape our behavior and the ways that we behave and the way that we respond within our environment. So often you'll see BCBAs in outpatient applied behavior analysis or ABA clinics, which is right now the gold standard treatment for patients that are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. My role is kind of unique, kind of as you mentioned, I am the only behavior analyst here at BCH. And even at other hospitals, there's only, I think, two or three other hospitals that have behavior analysts practicing kind of the same type of environment. So I'm kind of curious, what's it like to be the only one of you in the hospital? Like I'm, I'm a nurse and there's 3,000 or more of us that work here. And I can't really wrap my head around what it's like to be the only one of your profession. You know, it's funny. I get asked that a lot. I actually find it very motivating because my job isn't the same as what a nurse position or role would be. It's really about looking at that socially significant behavior change. And so I think sometimes when that first started, people were thinking, well, she'll be working with the kids that are, you know, really challenging. But in reality, a big part of my job is actually training the staff that are working with these patients that exhibit really challenging behavior. Because if we're looking at behavior change from a, a high level perspective, it's going to be the people that are going to have that direct contact with those patients. And so that's really the behavior change that I try to target um, and really empowering those staff and individuals to be able to manage those behaviors more safely. Can we back up a little bit and um, we'd like to know a little bit more about how you got into this field. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a great question. It's funny. I actually have not been asked that here in Boston. My mom is a special education teacher. And so uh, when I grew up, you know, she had a multi-handicapped classroom of individuals that had various diagnoses, cognitive, emotional, behavioral, and physical. And when I was in elementary school, there weren't any services for parents that their children, you know, to be able to go to like before school care or like respite. There just weren't programs available, especially in the small town I grew up in. And so um, my mom actually had one of her students get dropped off in the morning and I kind of grew up with him as kind of like a brother. And he had a diagnosis of autism. And I remember every morning getting woken up in the same kind of song tune with my lights flickering. And I really was drawn to him and just how unique he was, but also just, you know, I grew up with him. And so it was very much part of my daily routine. And then in elementary school, you know, I was at the same school my mom taught at. And so I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And it'd be like an hour later. And my teacher would be like, where's Olivia? 
and I would actually be in my mom's classroom working with the kids. So I've, I've always really been drawn to supporting those that have different needs and, and learning styles. I remember thinking it was the coolest thing to learn about how my mom taught her students and that it wasn't just this cookie cutter way, but the state required these individualized plans. And I remember her talking to me once about teaching one of her students how to make a hot dog and she had to record that and then send it to the state. And so that's really what started my interest in, in wanting to pursue working with individuals with developmental disabilities. And then I went to college and started working with individuals with really significant and challenging behavior and felt like when I was in the classroom, I saw these kids that were kind of falling through the gap, kind of falling through the holes of the system and not necessarily getting the behavioral support they needed. And that really is what led me to behavior analysis is here we have this science that can indicate why this behavior is happening. And we have these evidence-based interventions that can address that and really improve the life and quality for these individuals. And so that's really what I think drove me to pursue a, a degree in behavior analysis. What other um, positions did you hold before you came to Boston? It's interesting. I don't think a lot of people know this, but in the United States, so nowadays, if we say ABA therapy, a lot of private insurance pays for ABA therapy, but it wasn't always like that. So there were different state mandates that said, yeah, your insurance will pay for ABA therapy. But when I got my degree, there was no insurance mandate. So there were no ABA clinics. I didn't grow up learning about how to run discrete trial training, which is a, a type of intervention, or, you know, to run a specific assessment tool. Instead, I really learned about the science. And so after I graduated, I didn't go to work in an ABA clinic. I actually went to work at Ohio State's University Hospital as part of their dual diagnosis clinic. And so there I worked with patients that had pretty intense medical and behavioral complexities as part of a treatment team to address both home, community, and school settings. And part of my graduate work, I had a research position at Ohio State where I was working in a self-contained school for individuals with significant developmental disabilities. And really my, my position there was really creating more depth of instruction for these individuals. So not just, you know, playing music and having them look at fireworks on an iPad, but really showing staff how we can make instruction more meaningful based on their specific behavioral and, and developmental disabilities, which I really learned, I think, a lifelong lesson that has made me, I think, successful even to where I am today. You're a young graduate student and you're going into this school of teachers that have been teaching forever and you're supposed to change their behavior. You know, like, who are you to tell me what to do? And I remember the first year, no one knew my name. And I was there like four days a week for like the entire day. So no one knew my name. And I remember just being like, that's okay. Like, they don't have to know my name. And so I was referred to as Buckeye behavior. What is that? But, so what like, Buckeye behavior? Ohio State Buckeyes. Oh, oh I see. Yeah. So, so I just, I remember being like, it's a like They don't have to know my name in order to like, for me to be able to change their behavior. And so it was really through, I think, modeling and just saying, how can I help to really open those connections and create kind of a level of trust. That's even something I think I still implement today with the staff that I work with, even though I've got substantial uh, experience of behavior change and what's going to work and what's not. I never come into a situation and say, here's what we have to do. You need to listen to me. Instead, it's more of a collaborative approach and we're doing it together. You talked about like the science of behavior. 
when you say science of behavior, I'm, I'm like, that sounds made up. <laughs> oh, it's about to get real nerdy in here. Just a little you know, I haven't been using a lot of this terminology in forever. And, uh, you know, I just started school again. And so I'm like having to like reuse all of this terminology. Have you guys heard of Skinner? Yeah, B.F. Skinner. Yep. So he's really known as, yeah, yeah, he's known as kind of the father of behavior analysis. And so there's two types of behavior we look at. We look at operant behavior and then respondent behavior. Respondent behavior is think about when someone blows in your eye and you blink. That's something that you have no control over. Where operant behavior is something that you're able to learn. So if I'm saying do this and I'm having you clap, you're clapping, you're learning that. But respondent would be if I had something and I was hitting your knee and then it just went up. So it's behavior that you have no control over where the other one is where we're teaching and shaping based on the contingencies. I honestly think that you have such a unique perspective on child behavior. If you could give us almost like a working definition of what behavior is and how nurses can intervene to change a patient's bad behavior to maybe a better one. So behavior is all around us. It's anything that can be observed and, and measurable. Basically, you can, you can identify and kind of rule out behavior based on can a dead man do it. So thinking about what is an occurrence or responsive behavior. So one of the things that's challenging is that when we look at behavior, we're only thinking about the bad behavior. And that's just as uh, with us in humans is think about if your child is going to touch the stove, you're more likely to say, no, don't, 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 rather than all the other times when they're not touching the stove. So we're really quick to respond to that really kind of negative and inappropriate behavior, often the safety ones, rather than really providing that reinforcement for the behaviors we want to keep seeing. So if we think about the patient that doesn't want to take meds, well, what about the 20 other times they took meds in this environment where like, all right, here. This is what's next. Give me your finger. But instead, if we started providing some more of that, even just verbal acknowledgement and reinforcement towards some of those adherence programs and routines, then we would see an increase in compliance with medical interventions. So I'm an educator, and I think in terms of practice gaps, and I think that in my work and observations, I think there's a practice gap in most healthcare providers' approach to managing the behaviors. I guess I'm curious your perspective as a behavior analyst coming into a hospital with doctors and nurses and social workers, child life specialists, all these different clinicians collaborating together. I'm sort of curious from your perspective, what do you see that's working well and what do you see that probably could be better? One of the plugs I, I just want to say is that Behavior analysts are experts at changing behavior. And in an ABA clinic, a large part of their role is parent training. And so no parent is the same. And so that's kind of the same, even just with all the staff that are involved in one patient's care is you've got different personalities, different histories of learning. Some people may have a certain way that they respond to patients where maybe someone else has another way. Um, And so really working with what your audience is. And I think one of the things is assessing first never coming in and just saying, here's the content, but really assessing where are we at right now and and where do we need to start with the learning and the training? And so, you know, uh, one of the things I think about with what are some areas of potential opportunities and, you know, what could be done differently is I think even just taking a second and reflecting, reflecting on all of the training opportunities, how'd that feel? Asking, asking staff that you work with, hey, I'm just wondering, what were your thoughts about that? I'd love any feedback you have or like, was this realistic? Was this too much time? And really getting that feedback from the staff you're working with, because that's really going to guide your effectiveness as a, a trainer. 
But I think also through those discussions, that's where you, you really find out where are the gaps. I may have my own idea of like, okay, this isn't working. This isn't working. But that's based on my own experience and my interpretation of what I think the hospital should run like or behavior management in the hospital. And so it's really through collaboration and understanding, you know, the other staff working with these patients of where can I meet them and what's going to make the most sense for the current environment. Olivia, you mentioned ABA clinics. What is an ABA clinic? And do we have those here at Children's? Great question. An ABA clinic stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. And in fact, if you go to Google and you type in ABA therapy near me, you'll see a map of all of the ABA clinics that are available. I say available, I mean, standing in Massachusetts, just because of of right now, the increased rates of individuals getting diagnosed with autism, more and more providers are needed in order to address the needs. And so often there's long wait lists. Right now, it's kind of a struggle in terms of getting services for your child, which I think is also contributing to some of the patients that we're seeing here at the hospital is the services aren't available. And so now they're coming in, they're boarding for long periods of time until that next placement. You know, there's ABA therapy can be in different settings. So it could be in a clinic. Often, you know, patients that are just diagnosed, uh, usually the recommended hour is 40 hours. It's not necessary for every single child. Again, it's individualized, but often that's to really teach those kind of precursor behaviors of learning. That way they don't need as many hours later on, but that's all through behavioral intervention and addressing some of the deficits of the diagnosis. The other settings it can be is the home environment, community. So again, it's it's really addressing the behavioral needs. For example, I have a patient I worked with in Texas who uh, would elope anytime she went out into a public setting. Uh, So we went on a couple community outings and worked on how can we work on increasing that positive praise to keep the child with the parent and how to redirect in the environment. So a lot of parent training goes into that as well. And you also mentioned that you do a lot of training for the healthcare providers at Children's. I'm assuming that nurses are part of that. Could you give us an example of how you would work with a nurse in dealing with a patient with behavioral issues? So I provide a training on a couple of different platforms. One of the trainings that I do is part of the new nurse orientation Wednesday morning classes is I provide kind of the basics of managing behavior to nurses that are new to Boston Children's Hospital. So right when they're coming in and the course does go over managing challenging behavior, but really the emphasis is around reframing how we look and think about behavior. So it's not just behavior is, is bad or that's being a bad child, but really identifying what is behavior. And so I do that through some really like interactive videos and actually have participants kind of identify like, oh, what happened before the behavior? What happened after? So they can really start thinking about their patient and how that would relate in a clinical sense. The other trainings I'm involved with is the simulation group. I co-facilitate the autism interdisciplinary care simulation for a patient with autism. And that goes through uh, with different medical care providers of, you know, how to provide care for a patient with autism coming in through the hospital. And really it, it encourages, I think, interdisciplinary care and collaboration, which is, I think, easier said than done. Um, and so it really gives, I think, learners an opportunity to explore that and really kind of have those aha moments of like, that makes sense why we should do this. And then the other training that I do is a bedside simulation, which is kind of, I think it's called quick and dirty of uh, coming to the bedside and using a professional actor to uh, have staff practice de-escalation skills, just like how we would with CPR. 
I think often we try teaching and training after a huge event, like during a debrief, but we wouldn't teach someone CPR skills after, you know, a cardiac event. We have to do it proactively. And so that's kind of the mindset that I have. And if a nurse wanted to sign up for your courses, your training programs, how would they do that? Net learning is one way they can do it. The other thing that they can do is they can also just email me or reach out to their educator on their floor. Can you give us an example of how you might have been able to change the outcome for a patient based on your collaboration with the nurses at the bedside? You know, when I first started, I was really treading carefully to like make sure I understood the environment and like who the key players were. And we were getting these behavioral consults as a team of patients that either had a failed admission or they were coming back in. And so I remember seeing this one email and it was like this patient that was marked as like high alert, urgent, aggressive patient with autism. You know, I was still kind of treading the water to be like, hmm. And so I kind of just was like, this might be one I could do if you guys, you know, don't mind. And so having that opportunity, what I I come to find out is that uh, this patient was a 17 year old who had had two failed admissions because he was fixated on the elevator. And so characteristic of autism is sometimes having that kind of fixated interest. And so for him, it was the elevators. And so he would leave his room. Uh, the first time he left his room, you know, they, they weren't able to get the data on his seizures. So they ended the admission. So then the second time he came back, they decided, you know, we're going to put staff with him to redirect him. So in case he tries to leave. And when he was redirected by staff, he became aggressive and required physical restraint and was not able to complete his admission. So this is kind of why this patient was marked as high alert. Um, And really the conversation was around, this is going to be successful. Let's have a low tolerance. And so when I was invited to be onto the case, I had reached out to the staff that had worked with this patient before, including the EEG techs that had worked with them. But also I had reached out to the parent and just gotten more information on who this child is. What are their likes? um, What does their normal routine look like? What supports do they they currently have? What helps them be successful? And so what I ended up doing is um, creating a plan in collaboration with all of the team members on helping this patient stay in the room. So I created a kind of a behavior plan that had a schedule and a reward chart that said every day that you get checks on these three things. So staying in your room, leaving your hat on, and then following your schedule. If you do that every day, you can earn one ticket to ride the elevator at the end of your stay. You know, the first time I presented this, someone was like, well, we need psych to approve this first. And I was like, okay, sure. Because I think people thought like, who is this crazy lady who is trying to give away like elevator tickets on this behavior that like we've not been able to handle. So, you know, we met him at the exit, shuttle exit, the employee entrance. And I repeated the rules to him. I handed him a little elevator ticket and I said, welcome to Boston Children's Hospital. Here's your elevator ticket to ride up to the floor. And then right when he got on the elevator, he had to hand the ticket over to someone that was going up with us. So then he didn't have a ticket. So this was something that really started becoming more reinforcing of like, I want to earn this. And so the result ended up being that at the end of his stay, he earned eight elevator rides and he was able to get the medical care he needed, which is really impactful for someone who was having pretty intense seizures and for two years wasn't able to move on to the next step of his interventions he needed because of behavior problems. And the really cool thing is that this plan has followed him for the last two years. I haven't had to redo it and staff are actually the ones implementing it. So it's, it's really that collaboration with nursing staff who are right there at the bedside. So it was, it's been really amazing to be able to see how, how excited staff are to have the tools and a plan to go, okay, yeah, I got this. That's an incredible story, Olivia. I just love it. 
knowing that I work in the emergency department and oftentimes we see these patients coming in acutely, like there's something that happened to them or, you know, all of a sudden they're sick. And we don't, as nurses, we don't have the time to delve into the conversations with the family in the heat of the moment to figure out what the patient's likes and dislikes are, because we have to just jump in and do what we have to do for that patient as soon as they walk in the door. So I'm just curious, do you have any tips or tricks for nurses if they have to intervene in a situation without time to prepare? Yeah, actually, that's a really great question. And thank you for bringing that up because a planned admission is definitely different than coming into the emergency room. Some of my just kind of off the top of my head uh, strategies I would do is even if you have 30 seconds, say there's a a seatbelt injury or, or something like that, and people need to get an exam ASAP. If you can take 30 seconds to reduce the sensory stimulation, turning off the lights, number of people talking, just that 30 seconds is going to help deescalate and and create more of a calming environment. Maybe that's 30 seconds where actually you're not talking about likes and dislikes of the staff, but you're doing those pre-huddle rounds with the staff that are going to be around to set the expectation of, okay, only one person's going to talk. That's going to be you and getting everyone on the same page so that that way you're not contributing more to kind of the overstimulation. That really makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of working with Olivia up on the ninth floor with an amazing experience we had with the patient in ICP. This child was being restrained continuously and um, the work, um, the simulation she ran with the staff, it was amazing to see uh, not only that admission, but when the child was readmitted, a a whole different um, experience with uh, being able to eliminate physical restraints. I think I always think of walking by that room after Olivia ran the simulation with the staff uh, using the live actor and hearing the nurses use the um, different techniques, like your grandmother's rule, first this, then that, and how impactful it is. And I think as nurses, we're taught to react in the medical situation. And one of the big things I learned from working with you, Olivia, and just, you know, I think the other nurses uh, would agree as well is, like you said, reflecting before you react. You don't always have to speak. You don't always have to jump in and do something. If you want to talk a little bit more about the techniques you taught the nurses, I think they're invaluable. Uh, you still see it getting applied to other situations. Yeah. Uh, I want absolutely. to hear about grandma's rule. What's that? So there are some basic behavioral strategies that can be utilized to really help de-escalate, but also increase compliance with basic tasks and requirements. So one of my favorite tools is it's called grandma's law. And um, so I'm sure, you know, if you guys have any memories, you know, sitting at your, your dining table with your grandparents and being like, I want cake and your grandma saying, oh, first peas, then cake. So it's first, it's presented of that task you don't really want to do, followed by the task you really want. So I was a big cake person, always wanted my dessert first. Wish I probably had a little more uh, emphasis on grandma's law in my current life, but it's a way to increase compliance. And also it's a way to avoid adding too much to the environment. So I'm only saying it like one time and then like I wait a minute because often our kids need extra time to process too. So it's one of my favorite tools. Teresa, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but one of the things that I've really learned to appreciate is just the world of nursing. I personally was terrified of nurses my entire life. I still remember getting my MMR shot and like running out of the school building and then like having to go get my shot like during summertime. But I, so I was a little worried, you know, being in this environment. But one of the things that I've really learned is that, you know, nursing is so task oriented and it is the nurse's job and it's on their, you know, license of keeping the patient safe. 
And so sometimes I think when we think about safety, we're thinking about medication or we're thinking about eliminating and stopping the behavior. But as a behavior analyst, I know if we're trying to eliminate or stop a behavior, there's going to be a huge rollover effect of kind of a behavioral contrast. So one of the things I really encourage staff to do, and I think it's easier for them to see it than to say it. Just like if someone gave me a syringe and was like, oh, give this flu shot, I would probably pass out. (laughs) So I think showing them responding by not responding, showing them it's okay, even if a patient is screaming home, 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 it's okay to give one kind of calm cue and then to take a breath. And through that education with those nurses, I felt like I really learned about, you know, it it wasn't necessarily the content that they needed. I think it was just validation that this is really hard work and it's hard work because maybe they've never received that training before or validation that when I go into a room and there's someone that's six foot, 200 pounds or a patient that's cussing at me, my heart is beating out of my chest and like, you're still going to have that and that's okay. But here are some ways that I calm myself down. Um, And I think it really normalized that it's not that you're a nurse and you can't do this. It's that we're learning new technologies together and, you know, we're all having to care for these patients. Olivia, I know in one of your trainings, you shared a video clip about a little girl who was using a swear word and it was her mother's perception that really caught me off guard. And I just remember the lesson that I learned from your video was that we have to be absolutely in tune to the way we are reacting to certain behaviors. And as nurses, just having that perspective, I went to work the next day and my perspective changed and I just felt so much I felt better prepared to deal with behaviors that were difficult, so to speak. And all because of your video, because it made me aware of, oh, wow, if someone behaves badly, I can't make a big deal of it because that person's going to continue with that behavior because of my response. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also have to give credit. It's a YouTube video. (laughs) I can happily send it out. So one of the things that we think about is for the patients that are coming in, and let's just say patients that are boarding care for behavioral health reasons, a lot of the times our behavior is a way to access our wants and needs. And so if you think about the patients that we're seeing, a majority of them through their behavior is how they get their wants and needs met. So for example, I don't like being alone in the room. If I start punching the wall, I'm going to get 10 people in the room. Or if I start arguing with you saying, I'm not taking my magnesium. No, yesterday I didn't take it. And then you're sitting in the room and you're trying to get me to take my magnesium. How long are you going to try that for? If it's really important, you're going to spend more and more time. So even just responding could be the presence of you in the room. And sometimes that's reinforcing enough for the patient. It's not about an iPad or it's not about getting to go on a walk, but it's about that undivided attention from you. So it's think about the spotlight. So I've got full spotlight. And the really challenging thing is that when we don't have a plan and we've got patients that are here for a while, they kind of learn these behaviors. They learn how to get their wants and needs met. And then it changes when maybe they come to the ED and then they go up to the floor. It changes from staff to staff. So even sometimes those inconsistencies can create escalations, which can be really unsafe at times. Levy, you shared a great analogy a while back about being itchy. Can you talk about that analogy? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I I asked staff is, you know, we're talking about a lot of kids with autism who engage in in self-injurious behavior. And so one of the things we talk about is, you know, I ask, has anyone here ever had a bug bite? And after about 30 seconds of like not responding, because again, behavior analyst here, I'm not going to respond to let them get out of it. So usually they're like, yeah, I have them. I say, so what do you do when you have a bug bite? And they're like, I scratch it. Okay. And why do you scratch it? 
they're like, cause it's itchy. I'm like, yeah, what does itching do? And they're like, oh, it, it temporarily like soothes it. I know I shouldn't. I'm like, okay, you're okay. <laughs> and one of the, the things I talk about is now think about if you've got bug bites all over your body, really you're itching all over and someone comes up to you, grabs your hands and says, safe hands. And you don't have a way to communicate that you need to scratch. I'm curious. What would you do? You'd react. Yeah. And Teresa, what would you do? If you're holding my hands, I'm going to react. I'm going to try to get you off me so I can scratch. Yeah. And so often for our kids with autism or developmental disabilities, or even just communication delays, sometimes they're not able to communicate and use their words or communication modalities to say, I need to do this. And so often the quickest way to get someone to stop is behavior. And so that's often what we see is when we try to stop or eliminate a behavior right away, we see this like huge escalation and it's usually aggression towards someone that's holding their hands. So I think that right there is something that helps change the perspective of not just stopping a behavior, but how can we redirect to another behavior? One of the things I talk about is I never have fidgets or stress balls in my pocket. I wish I did, but I don't. And so really encouraging staff, you know, who are the first responders of using what's in the room, even simple of simplest thing of making your bed. Hey, I got the new sheets. Do you want to make your bed now or later? Providing that choice can really alter how a patient is escalating and responding. When you're dealing with a behavioral patient, there's added time to dealing with the behavioral patient, even with all the tools. And you mentioned that we're task oriented. So how do you balance that in the dynamic clinical space that we're working in? Great question. I will say through conversations and really talking with nurses. So like the educators and conversations with Teresa, I really started to understand what is kind of a shared common language that that way we can kind of brainstorm some strategies together. Some of the recommendations I have is, you know, if you're meeting a patient for the first time, I would just assume that it could either take a long time or, or maybe not, but I would plan as if you were going into a complex dressing change. So what would you do for another patient you were caring for? You'd hand your phone off. If there's a resource nurse, let them know. Maybe say, hey, if I'm not out in a minute, can you call for extra backup? Really having that communication before even going into the room. Trying to hand off tasks that maybe your other colleagues on the floor could do. So ordering breakfast for another patient things like that. Um, So that way, when you're in the room, you're present in the room and you're not thinking about, I'm sure, two or three other patients that you know these tasks need to be done in a timely manner. I can share, Olivia, just the other day, I had a patient who would not take his medicines. He was six years old. I just got report. They told me he needs his morning meds. You have to go in, give him his medication and everything will be fine. I went in. Apparently, I made the mistake of waking him up and he was very angry that I woke him up. And I apologized and said, just take your meds. You can go back to sleep. And then he escalated from there. And he's like, I'm not taking my medicines because you woke me up. I was in that room for probably 20, 25 minutes, trying everything I knew in my toolbox to get him to take his medicine. And I knew I had to step out to go take care of my other patients. So after about 20 minutes of this, I just said, okay, I have to leave now. And I walked out the door. Right before I walked out the door, he said, stop, wait, I'll take my medicines for you now. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) I will tell you that happens more often than not. And usually when I make this recommendation, the nurse will look at me being like, why are you pulling me out of this room? Again, it's that spotlight of attention. It's that, how am I going to get you to be in the room and to go back and forth with me? And even though we're looking at it more like, okay, our mind is on the task we need to complete, but we're not thinking about what is it that they're trying to complete? What does that behavior serve for them? What is the function of their behavior? 
And so if that ever happens again, just say, hey, you know what? Within like two minutes, I'd be like, you know what? I've got some other things I got to do. So I'll be back a little bit later or, you know, just let me know when you're ready and then go out. Don't tell them when you're coming back. Sure enough, you'll have a call bell within like two minutes. So that's what I usually recommend. But then the other thing is just saying, you know what? Today's a new day. We got to order breakfast. So first we got to do meds, then we can order breakfast and then we can talk about what the rest of our schedule is. And if they're still like, no, because you made me do this, just say, okay, just let me know when you're ready and walk out. I think a lot of times BCBA or ABA is, is associated with patients on the autism spectrum, but at the hospital, you're working with a lot of different types of patients, different diagnoses. Give us your perspective on autism, behavioral health, mental health, psych borders. Like, is there overlap? Are they different? Do you approach them the same? Does something work for one that works for another? It's unfortunate that behavior analysts have been siloed into the field of just autism um, because really we're practitioners of science and that is kind of our field of study. Um, so it's not just autism behavior, it's all behavior. And in fact, a lot of people don't know this, but behavior analysts practice in a variety of different settings. There's a couple of behavior analysts that they're focusing on socially significant behavior change of traffic safety and pedestrian deaths. And so they are doing research on that. And then they're working with, you know, suburban communities to implement those to reduce deaths. There's also a lot of behavior analysts that are practicing in environment sustainability. I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard of Karen Pryor, but she's a behavior analyst who's really known for shaping and animal behavior. And so those principles, even though they're used with animals, it's the science of behavior analysis. And so it's all about the principles of behavior that we're applying. And again, each individual context is so different. It's not about one diagnosis or another diagnosis. Those are things we still consider and take into account, but it's more about what is the hypothesized function of the behavior and also taking into account where is their independent functioning level at. So for example, I wouldn't redirect a three-year-old to singing opera or, you know, something that they're not interested in. So it's really taking the individual into account. You know, I'm not going to redirect someone to something that they're not interested in. So it's taking those environmental cues, but also looking at what do I think that this behavior is serving for this individual and then using the behavioral principles to address it. One of the main things I think about is, you know, while the BRT is, is expanding and doing a lot of managing kind of this influx of patients we're seeing, I really think about my role as being this kind of proactive response and thinking about patients that may really struggle with medical interventions or patients that are maybe getting restrained a lot and thinking about designing a, an individualized behavior plan that can set them up for success and also set the, the staff up for success. If that's, you know, addressing how we're responding, you know, helping people have a consistent way to respond. But part of that is I, you know, I assess the function of the behavior. So I'm not just going to try, you know, some intervention out of nowhere. I need to have that data. So I get that data usually from conversations with nurses. So tell me about the behavior. What happened? Okay. And what happened right before she started headbanging? Oh, okay. So mom left. Okay. And then what happened after? Okay. So she had to talk to mom right after. Okay. So headbanging probably gets attention from mom. So maybe we create a schedule of here are the times we're going to call mom or see mom. So that way they're able to proactively see, and then you're more able to redirect of when they're going to be able to get that attention. So it really depends on the function of the behavior. And so I'd say I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the individual variables for each case and designing interventions around that to address those specific needs. I know we've been talking a lot about patients and how to deal with patients' behavior. 
What about parents? What about parents who all of a sudden become argumentative or they're coming at you really as a nurse? How can we use your skills in that type of situation? We're seeing this a lot. And I, I ask this question frequently because sometimes our parents are in the rooms with our patients when maybe they're starting to escalate or, you know, maybe the nurse is identified. It seems like maybe like, maybe we need to take a break. And the parents like, no, I'm staying in the room. She's not watching that Netflix show. And like the child screaming and then like, you know, they're swearing. And so it's like this immediate kind of trickle effect of like, okay, what can I do? Sometimes even just suggesting it, not saying it, but just being like, Hey, you know what? Can I ask you a question? Like just outside for a second, because even just getting the parent outside the room to be able to explain, you know, to their face of like why you're asking them to step out that alone and doing it in a very calm tone comes off as not threatening. And then if the parents not being the excuse or they're like, no, I'm staying in this room. I'd say, okay, we're going to ask some people to leave and take a break. So mom, I'm going to ask you to step out and Johnny, I'm going to ask you to step out as well. And then I'm going to step out. So that way it's not just like you're sending the parent out, but we're stepping out together. It's really hard though, when a parent is screaming and directing it at you to not take it personally. And in fact, those are the times that I have some of my most challenging days because it feels like I wasn't effective at my job. And I can imagine for a nurse taking care of a patient and keeping them safe and feeling like you didn't keep your patient safe because they're escalating now or they're in a restraint, like how that would feel. And so there are times where it doesn't go well, but I debrief those with my colleagues when I'm in like a place where I feel like I can talk about it. And that's been really helpful for me. Olivia, I know we, we talk a lot about behavior with patients who have some sort of uh, mental health diagnosis or, you know, maybe an autism diagnosis, but I'm curious about kids in general. After the COVID pandemic, I feel like it had such an impact on them with either the isolation, being in school on Zoom for a year and a half, and now they're back in school and we're trying to normalize their worlds again. And a lot of them are, are struggling with that. They're not really sure how to interact on a personal level with their peers anymore. And we're seeing that this is problematic. How can we help them? Yeah, so that's a, a really uh, a large question. One of the, the ways I like to think about it, and I always like making connections because I think it just helps me, I think, appreciate kind of the problem a little more. One of the things I think about is kids were away doing remote schooling for a year, year and a half. And so think about what happens when our kids are on summer break and they come back to school. There's an adjustment period. And so we're seeing that really big reaction. Um, we're also seeing, you know, a lot of kids that are coming in and they're taking things so literal. So it's really challenging. But again, it's what do we need to teach? Not just what do we need to stop? But is there an area of maybe we need to address this? I'm curious what your thoughts are about social media and the role it plays into the behaviors. It's interesting. I, I'm also, I'm not the best at social media. I mean, I think the coolest things I've learned have been like how to use a QR code and like how to do bitmojis. And I'm like, oh, I am impressive. But one of the things that I think startles me, and again, I'm not a parent, but I feel like our technology is advancing so much in that we're not catching up with it. And I think there's going to be some, some effects with that. I think there's some really great ways that we can utilize technology and improve some of the challenges in our, our society and culture. But I do worry about what the effects are going to be, not only for our own mental health, but for even just following others and some of these challenges like the milk crate challenge. And then people posting those online. So it's it's kind of scary, but I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts. 
What does the ED nurse think? Just in general, do you see patients coming in because of these like social media crazes? Yeah, we do see kids engaging in high risk behaviors just because of something that they saw on social media. And it's not a huge problem for us, but when these kids come in, they can be seriously injured and these injuries can have major impacts on their lives later on. So yeah, it's huge. When these kids come in with behavior that is things that are concerning and we have to stop behavior, the first thing we do is take away their phones. So we take away their social media. We do not let them have their phones. We don't even let them use our gaming system because we know these kids are so smart, they can figure out how to get on social media through our gaming system. So we shut them off completely from that. And for these kids, it's their lifeline. So now not only are they in the ER, they're in a tiny room with no window. So they have no idea if it's day or night. And then we take away their lifeline so they can't even connect with their friends. And then we expect them to behave and become the whole time that they're in the ER. Yeah. And let me, let me just ask, is the response when you say we have to take away your phone, is it usually like, okay, like, thank you. Or what, what is it? Oh, absolutely not. They get so furious. They escalate and they don't want it. They fight us for it. They say, but no, you can't have my phone. And we say, well, yeah, we can. And we're taking it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So that's how we start our visit. So I, I do know of those things. The one thing I, I will say, so from a behavioral perspective, what that is happening. So again, a lot of our kids are are kind of addicted to the phone. That is their lifeline. That is kind of their everyday routine of like, that's how I communicate with my friends. That's how I get attention. So one of the ways I like to think about it is think about every day you go to work and you work on the 20th floor. And for 15 years, you know, you go into elevator, you press 20 and it goes, it lights up and it goes straight to your work. And then think one day you get in the elevator, you press 420, the button, and it doesn't light up. What are you going to do? I'm going to cry because I'm not walking up 14 floors. (laughs) Right. But would you just be like, hmm, guess the elevator's not working. I'm going to get off. Or would you try pressing the button a little bit different? Would you try maybe holding it? Maybe like hitting floor, you know, 11, 12, and then 20. Would you try hitting it faster? So it's the same thing when we try to eliminate or stop a behavior is a lot of the times our kids have, it's called an extinction burst. They've been responding a certain way and then we're no longer reinforcing that. So we've taken the phone away and we see this extinction burst. And we see this a lot in the EG, especially when we kind of take away the phone and expect them to just be chill and cool with it. Mm-hmm. But so I guess I'm curious, like, what is the phone being taken away because of what? Because we're not able to completely watch their activity on the phone. And they could be connecting with people who are, in fact, dangerous for them. And we have to just turn that off. We have to stop that communication. Mm-hmm. Olivia, like, do you get involved with kids with eating disorders at all or cutting SI behavior? I will tell you, I often am not getting involved with patients that are cutting. You know, one of the, the parts of my position is making sure I'm, I'm really working collaboratively with everyone. Um, and so often, you know, uh, someone from the site consult team has been assigned and there's maybe already a plan in place. But I do work with patients that have eating disorders. Also, I work a lot with patients who um, have medical trauma. So I work with a lot of patients who are um, on the cardiac floor and maybe having some dysregulation around a fluid restriction. And then there's inconsistency of how we're responding. So maybe one nurse is saying, you know, oh, I'll add a little bit of ice here or, oh, we can only have it in a small little clear cup. 
So sometimes if we're not responding consistently, we see this kind of behavioral escalation up and flow, which can be really dangerous for a patient that has a pump and awaiting a heart transplant. So that's some of the work I do. I also work uh, a lot with patients who are coming in for like dialysis or through the CAT-CR who have frequent appointments and staff will reach out about, hey, Jimmy is coming in and every time he comes in, he has to require a restraint. It's really, you know, traumatic for everyone, including the patient and family, wondering if you could come and do an assessment and then create a plan. And so I'll work with those patients as well, especially for patients that are going to have more and more visits to address medical needs. I know we can't get enough of you on the inpatient side when we have our patients are totally uh, dysregulated. And I look at like, I always say anxiety is the word that I see, like, because, you know, nurses will get their assignment in the morning and they're like, oh, God, you know, right away, you can see them starting to be concerned about how they're going to manage the what ifs. You know, we think like that a lot, like the critical thinking piece when you read your assignment. It's like, what could be the worst case scenario? The last two years, the uh, the volume of patients with behavioral health issues coming in, like the impact it's had on nurse, on our nursing staff, caring for the patients. You know, sometimes it's not necessarily that I'm designing these interventions, but I'm helping support the medical staff. So either nurses, interns, residents, going into a room, and even just how we're framing questions. Uh, if there's a patient that gets escalated really quickly, there's a lot of hesitation when we go into a room. When a patient, we're in a room and a patient starts escalating, we all get really tense. And so sometimes our patients feed off of that. So sometimes I'll even go in just to help kind of set the framework of, hey, so here's our plan for today. We can do this or this, but also helping staff understand it's okay to leave and modeling that language. So if I'm in a room and a patient is escalating because they want to know if they can go off the floor or something about their, their medical intervention, but they're starting to display some of those really like maladaptive behaviors. So screaming, cussing, maybe even trying to pull off a line. Sometimes just saying, hey, you know what? I can tell you need a break. Do you want us to stay or do you want us to leave? And giving them that choice. And I think really modeling those strategies for staff can be really impactful and often doesn't require me to be involved for the remainder of the week or even the patient's care. So sometimes it's just as simple as that. When staff is looking for help, do they reach out to you directly? Do they reach out to BRT? Like, how do we get you to the bedside? So usually texting or even just giving me a call or an email is best. You know, I, I really, I prioritize patients who are struggling significantly. So patients that are either in lots of restraints or, you know, the team is kind of at a loss. I like to say that I'm an expert in chaos. And so one of the things I'm really proud of is getting this really messy plan. And like, I think of like, kind of like a circus where like everything is falling down and, and just very disorganized and just like getting it kind of all together and then being able to fade out. And so sometimes it's just about the communication and here's what we're going to say. And here's how we're going to respond to this behavior. But yeah, so emailing, texting on the Spectre link, or even just calling. I'm here for, for supporting staff and patients that are having behavioral challenges through either boarding for psychiatric care or difficulty with medical interventions. And that's what I'm passionate about. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get this Olivia kind of plan or, you know, something that's like really like elaborate, but more than anything, you're going to get support. And I do that through, I think, not just giving people recommendations, but really helping people understand the recommendations and why we're responding a certain way, which I think really helps. And your role is hospital-wide? Yes. Are you associated with the Autism Center of Brookline Place at all? I am. So for those patients, 
you know, we do have BRT staff over there, but for those patients, I would go over there if it was like Johnny who required a 10 person restraint last time or required, like had some big safety event. And then I would do planning. So the next time Johnny comes in, we have a plan to help, help him kind of have a successful visit and hopefully reduce need for any type of restraint or safety event. We use the phrase behavioral health or behavioral patient. And after our conversation today, I'm kind of like, well, that's everyone. Is it the right word to use or could, could there be a better word? Just my perspective, everyone has behavior. I would have been labeled a runner, like in a loper. I would have needed a behavior plan and an escort and probably a hold, which is the reason I'm traumatized from needles is because I was held. And honestly, I didn't get help until I was in college because I was passing out at every doctor's appointment, like in the waiting room. You know, here I am like 25 and passing out. And it's like, oh, this I got to get a grip on this. Everyone has behavior. So I think when we say behavioral health, it kind of silos groups of people and almost has this kind of like negative connotation. And I know there's a lot of talk of like, you know, people first and, you know, then diagnosis first and, and how we label people, but labeling in our words matter. And I think we should be talking about the person because I think when we label patients as behavioral health, it puts them in this category of, well, we treat them differently, but, but not that we're treating them differently, we're providing different care which still comes off as like, so they're not getting the same care as maybe another patient. And even though practitioners and and staff that are providing that care, you know, we can all say like, oh, you know what I mean? But it still doesn't feel right saying it. I think there are specific accommodations and needs for each individual. And I think it's on an individual basis. What are your thoughts about the term order? It's not my favorite, mostly because it reminds me of like, like it's, it's a holding place, which just still doesn't feel right. And in fact, I, I had never heard about that term until I moved here to Boston. So Olivia, what do you see like the future for BCBAs, behavior analysts in hospital settings? Is it something that you see growing? Do you think there'll be more Olivia Millers here at Children's and will other hospitals want to have Olivia Millers? Um, so I'm so glad you asked. One of the things, and I think anyone that that has ever met me um, will know that I'm really passionate about contributing to the science of behavior analysis and medical environments, because often they're not in hospital settings. And there's a lot of rationale of why they're not. Behavior analysts are really good of changing behavior, but it's in a controlled environment. Uh, It's in a clinic sense where we have control over every single thing. And that's just not a hospital setting. And so there's a lot of behavior analysts that they don't get the experience in a medical setting. So it's like expecting a, a new grad nurse who, let's say, they've only been working on mannequins, and then you're expecting them to now go and work with people. And so that can be really off-putting for people. But behavior analyst doesn't have, I think, the ability to be flexible and to really understand the environment and the variables that, that contribute to it. I think it'll be a, a really challenging relationship to overcome. So that being said, I think staff have been really welcoming to having support from a behavior analyst in this setting. And so, you know, one of my goals is in the next couple of years to really establish more opportunities for students who are working towards their master's degree in behavior analysis. So I know for nursing, there's like a certain amount of like field work that's like a requirement. And so, you know, one of my hopes is for behavior analysts that are pursuing their degree, they have two components they have to complete. So they have to complete a, an academic, so the coursework. And then the second component is field work hours. And so back in the day, it used to be 1,500 hours of experience. And now I believe it's 2,000 hours. So that's about two plus years. And so there's a very kind of strict 
guidelines of of what's acceptable supervisory activities and not. So my goal is to create more opportunities for students who are interested in working in healthcare to come and actually get experience. And so I would be their supervisor providing that clinical oversight and helping them build the skill set to be able to be successful in other healthcare settings. And, you know, I think my other, and this is a little bit newer, but, you know, there's two other hospitals right now that have BCBAs um, and are interacting in kind of the a similar context that I am, one of them being CHOP. And what's interesting is there's two behavior analysts that actually they manage and work closely with adolescent medicine in their most challenging cases. And, you know, what they told me is that they're not necessarily working with patients with autism, but they're really focusing around patients who have medical and behavioral needs, specifically a lot of patients with eating disorders. And so they design those interventions and then help address and support staff on how do we respond. So I think there's a lot of areas for growth here and also the care we're providing. But I, I think in terms of, you know, the next five years, I'd really like to build a team of behavior analysts and even thinking about, you know, we're going to be having potentially cohorts and more intensive interventions designated to different areas. Maybe having a behavior analyst uh, oversee one of those areas or just like, you know, I think maybe one of the Gen Pete's team is going to have an NP, maybe have a behavior analyst. I've really grown fond of nine East and, and nine ICP. So I'm, I'm always like, hmm, I wonder if they would just ever want like a behavior analyst on there. But it's because there's a lot of need for behavior management, but also in terms of helping patients get through their admission, there's a lot of times that medical cares aren't completed because behavior gets in the way. And I think there's a lot of admissions that are extended because of that. And so I think there's a real opportunity for behavior analysts to really become partnered with the healthcare system and, and make a change in, in society and our culture. One of the most exciting things has been, it's not just bedside nurses that are reaching out. It is really cool when a nurse manager will email me directly and say, hey, can I come talk to you about this patient? And to be able to connect with someone that this is something that's really important to, to their floor and helping me understand because again, I'm not a nurse. So sometimes I hear these like terminology and I'm like, wait, what? It really makes me feel like I'm part of this organization and we're all working together. And that's how I truly feel. Well, Olivia, I have to say that I want an Olivia Miller in the ER 24 seven, especially on nights and weekends. How about that? <laughs> you know, I, I think there needs to be training opportunities because unfortunately, you know, again, I grew up in a state that didn't have the autism insurance mandate. So I grew up learning and really implementing and understanding the science. So I can apply the science to any population diagnoses. It's all about the individual where someone that only grew up in an ABA clinic and doing discrete trial training, they're going to have a really difficult time in this environment. Even just, you know, a big thing in our field right now is collaborating with others. So sometimes you'll hear parents say, and Dennis, I'm not sure if you've ever heard this, but um, sometimes you'll bring up, oh, well, we have a BCBA here. And people are like, in the hospital, like that won't work. And they're, they're so put off by it because BCBAs are very rigid and rule governed. And sometimes they have a hard time of not using behavioral jargon. So like, you know, like I don't come into a room and I'm like, oh, we should be fading the schedule of reinforcement and contingency based. The nurses will be like, get the heck away from me, you know? So someone that can break down these concepts and really make it user-friendly. And I feel lucky enough that I got to do that at OSU and then I got to do that at Children's Health in Dallas. Um, and so these experiences, I think, have really shaped me as a behavior analyst and, and the, the 
I think services I provide. And so I think my, you know, my biggest worry is there aren't a lot of training opportunities for behavior analysts in this setting and to have a BCBA come into this setting and not be successful, I think would be really hard to see someone fail, you know, or at least have challenges. Who was behind your role, getting your role here at Children's, who had that vision to say, you know what, let's try behavior analysts? There was a couple people behind it and it was through the meeting, but it was uh, Sarah Spence, who's a neurologist and Pat Pratt, who um, they're both on the autism executive committee. And we're really talking about, you know, some specific patient cases where patient was here with autism and, and was really struggling. And there had been a lot of safety events with staff getting hurt, staff even being scared of treating this patient. And in fact, there are times where I'll hear, I'll hear whispers of, oh, we had this one patient on our floor. And I immediately know it's the patient that, you know, staff were really struggling with is the reason I potentially got hired. So it was through their advocacy is, is how I got this opportunity. I remember, um, I think a couple of years after I got into my professional development role, I got a phone call from um, a developmental medicine pediatrician and she was asking if I could, you know, support them in education they wanted to get in front of nurses, like just sort of basic, like autism spectrum disorder information and strategies to approaching care. And I, I remember asking her, I was like, oh, you work within the autism spectrum center. Do we have BCBAs here? And she's like, no, no. And I was like, we need, we need someone. And it was a few years later. And I remember like hearing about her, Olivia Cummins. And I was like, could be a game changer. It, it is understanding behavior on a different, different level than what we were trained. You know, we've talked before and Denise, you can speak to it as well. Like when we do all our other ed- education, it's about reacting, you know, you're assessing and you're reacting. It's a different type of reacting that we, we all have to learn to do and to be able to uh, effectively care for kids in the hospital that are experiencing behavioral high sc- health crises. I get sometimes from nurses almost like, um, well, this ain't going to work because this isn't the way that I work. There's a, there's a parrot, there's like a nursing paradigm. And I think the nursing paradigm has to shift a little bit to like either expand or shift over to include what Olivia's paradigm, like if there's a Venn diagram, it's got to come like a little bit like this for I think nursing to function to its highest potential. I personally believe that there's so much of escalation and restraints, it's self-inflicted, not on purpose, but just you're doing things the way you always did it. And it doesn't work for certain patients. I get pushback from that when I try to like share that perspective. I think even just teaching like the simplest things. Yeah that could make a significant difference. So if everyone knew this one rule, like there's one thing, you know, for example, anytime I go into a room with maybe a patient that's larger than me or I don't know, or I'm concerned that they may try to charge me, I don't ever go in alone. I feel I'm confident of like, you know what? I'd rather feel safe and have someone in there. But anytime I go into a room, I will look for the security officer and I'll say, hey, before we go in, I just want you there to be able to block in case anything happens, but I don't want you to verbally respond. And I say that because one of the quickest ways to get into a restraint is if a patient says, you know, F-U-B, and the security officer is there to protect you, goes, hey, 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 now, it's one of the quickest ways to get into a restraint. So even just, again, kind of rounding outside of the room before you go in and having that plan can eliminate the need for restraint significantly. 
just another question, just based on your experience, Olivia, you know, fast forward to a month, a month and a half down the road where COVID vaccines are going to be given to children. And I was curious of what your thoughts are or any tips that you could give to help these kids navigate this, just given your own experience with needle phobia. Yeah, absolutely. So I first just have to make this plug. Behavior analysts actually have significant expertise in treating health-related behaviors. So even things like obesity, CPAP, tolerance and desensitization, smoking cessation programs, tolerance programs for EEG lead applications and increasing medical adherence, dental exam procedures, as well as blood draws. So there's lots of research that has effective and evidence-based interventions that can address some of these. You know, one of my recommendations is I know this because my fiance has a a really bad fish allergy. And so we have this like mock EpiPen. So like we can practice in case I would try to get uh, some of the equipment that would be similar in an environment of like gloves, you know, even just like a fake syringe, nothing with a needle, but just, you know, what it looks like and just practicing and not practicing enough that your child is, is having kind of this like fear response, but thinking about kind of a, an exposure program. So for example, like for me, it's when I see the needle is when I get really nervous. So my like steps of what I would work towards is maybe just coming in, sitting down in the chair and then getting up and ending it. So I'm slowly coming into contact with that stimuli that evokes kind of that fear response. And then through kind of gradual presentations, it's no longer evoking that same response. And so that's really how we work on some of that desensitization and and gradual uh, exposure treatment. Can I ask one more question in regards to your collaboration with child life? Where do they fit into your practice? So depending on there's a patient that's really struggling on the floor, often, you know, their child life has already been working with them. And so it's really important to reach out to them, collaborate, because maybe they've already tried an intervention that I would have tried. And so I'm not going to waste time. I want to know what's been working well, what's not, because their input is really, really valuable. I mean, they're master level clinicians. And they have information that could save time, but also could potentially help the patient more in the long run. And so being able to get that valuable information and working together, again, there's only one of me. And so sometimes partnering with them and having them replicate what's happening or even reminding staff, it's it's almost like a, a double attack on how can we support these patients. So I would say any intervention that I've ever implemented, it's only successful if child life is involved. That was my plug for child love because I know how important they are to the team as well. Do you, have, do you have any other tips or tricks for nurses to use in their practice? Yeah. So I, I know we've talked about grandma's law, but one of my favorites, and this is like, I think been a big aha moment with training staff has been when we're trying to deescalate a patient and, and trying to get them to a place of calm we're very verbal beings. And so we use a lot of language. And so one of the things that I really recommend is offering controlled choices. Take a second and just think about you've had a really, really rough day. You know, you have plans after work to go and see one of your friends that you haven't seen for a year because of COVID. And this is like one of your best friends. Every time you're together, you just have the best time. And so you're kind of just thinking all day, like, you know, if I can get through today, it'll be worth it. Your, your floor ends up being understaffed. So you have an extra patient. You don't end up getting a lunch break because there was a late admission. 
And then there's just some like, kind of like confusion going on in the floor. And then you get told that you've done something wrong. So it just feels like everything that's happening is like, you know, not going your way. And just the next thing after the other is just not going right. And so usually your commute home takes you about 20 minutes. Today, it takes you about two and a half hours. So unfortunately, you missed your dinner plans with your friend. And then right before you walk into the door, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on Denise. So Denise, right before you walk into the door, you step in dog poop. And not like the solid kind, the kind where you need to take off your shoes, go get a bag, and then put it in. And you get home and someone at your house comes up to you and says, Denise, it looks like it's been a really long day. What can I do? And your reaction is like, uh, and you're just scrolling through all of the things that happened. And you're like, oh, I don't know. And you walk away. Now think about instead if that person came up to you and said, you know, Denise, it seems like it's been a really hard day. Do you want wine or chocolate? Yeah, it's much easier just to give me two choices instead of asking me to come up with the answer. Yeah. So even when we're agitated and escalated in our own lives, we can't identify what our own coping skills are. So giving controlled choices can be really helpful with giving our patients a sense of control back and thinking about, you know, our patients that we're seeing, especially our patients with behavioral health needs and behavioral dysregulation, they're here because one, they probably don't have the most appropriate coping skills. Two, they're in a new environment. So they don't actually know what they can access. So if we're saying, what can I get you? And it's like, Hmm, what do you have this? Do you have this? And sometimes we don't actually know what a patient can have in their room. So my go-to is always offering, if possible, maybe a small cup of crushed ice or a drink and giving those two choices. And that can be a way to move on to the next thing. That's that redirection to a, a different behavior. I love that analogy. It's so helpful. It's funny, but if you start really thinking about your own behavior, take a second and like, think about the things, what are the things that are the most annoying? That's really how I reflect on behavior and how I respond to things. And you'll really start figuring out and kind of identifying things. So like Denise, like you said, like the little boy who was like, I'm not taking my meds. Really, it's it's through that reflection. And I think we're right now in such a high stress environment that sometimes it's not easy for us to take a second and reflect or to pause and take someone else's opinion or their considerations into account. And so that's another thing I really emphasize is like, take a moment and listen stop talking, just listen or think about something. I, you know, I think the one thing I think about is like, we're talking a lot about room safety. We're talking a lot about removing things from the room. We're talking about, you know, all these behavioral bundles and, and yada, yada, yadas, but like, we're not talking about what are the proactive and positive interventions? What are the replacement behaviors? We can't just stop someone from doing a behavior. We have to replace it with something. That's so true. Just to put a plug out there, I learn through watching others and observing. And so I'm always welcome to have other people come and spend a day with me if they are interested and want to observe too. That'd be a great experience, especially for our new nurses. Like you said, they don't have the clinical experience coming out of school and the, the interpersonal relationships and interactions that happen. They're not trained on that. So that would be a great opportunity for them. Thanks, Olivia. Olivia, thanks for spending time with us today and telling us a little bit about yourself and your role and giving us those practical tips that we can use in practice. And we'll look forward to seeing you around the hospital. Thank you so much. 
This Small Talk podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital, with support from our emergency department and inpatient medicine programs. If you would like to be a guest on Small Talk, email Denise Downey. We'd love to have you as a guest and have you share your expertise with the entire Boston Children's community. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk podcast.